0: Well, good morning. Can I say, uh, before we start, to those who led us this morning in, in singing, thank you. It is, it is always beautiful and uh, helpful. For me, it was especially so this morning. Uh, and in particular, the songs that were chosen that you led us in were just perfect preparations for what we're going to be thinking about from God's Word this morning. So thank you very much for that. Uh, if you haven't already uh, would you turn with me in your bibles to psalm 127 if you were in town last week you know we were in the gospel of luke in luke chapter 2 and we read the uh, birth narrative account uh, there of jesus uh, but especially we focused on what happened as the angel brought the message of hope to the to the shepherds uh, that were watching their flock there. And we reflected on the ways that the Christian's hope is a unique thing in this world. Uh, we, we talked about why it is that Paul expects it to be our hope that elicits questions from the people around us. And he tells us to be prepared to give a defense when asked about the hope that is in us. There's something unique about the hope that we possess. This morning, as we look toward the start of a new year this week, I thought. It would be good for us to continue in one way on that same theme, but to look at that hope from another angle. Uh, In particular, an angle that we find Solomon aiming at here in Psalm 127. And uh, we're going to focus, you'll notice that chapter is a whole five verses. We're going to focus even more narrowly than that. We're going to look only at verses 1 and 2 this morning. There are some who believe that verses 3 through 5 are not connected to verses 1 and 2 and I do not agree with that at all. I think they're very connected. I think verses 3 through 5 give an excellent fleshing out an example of the truths that we're going to see in the first two verses. But for our time this morning, we're going to just focus there. Uh, and as we read it in just a moment, you might be confused as to why we come here to continue to see this unique message of hope because it might not strike your ear as an especially hopeful set of verses. These are two verses where the word vain appears three times in two verses. Why? Where's the the hope here? But it is, it very much is, uh, a a passage full of hope. And I want us to see, in particular, that there's something that Solomon is emphasizing in verse 1 and something different but related that he's emphasizing in verse 2 And these two truths together give us incredible fuel for godly living when we've understood them correctly, fuel for hopeful living that is befitting of a child of God. Uh, So for these reasons, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk very carefully through these two verses to be sure that we get the points that Solomon is making here, and then we're going to put it all together and draw two conclusions about how these realities are meant by your God this morning, to give you tremendous hope. Uh, so with those things in mind, if you are able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we come before you together this morning eager to be fed by your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for all of the providential means you have worked to allow us to be here. The health, the opportunity. We are we are recipients of amazing grace this morning as as is clear by the fact that we are here together, not just to hear from your word and to submit to it, but to do so together to grow together as a family in likeness to your son. And we thank you for these rich blessings. Lord, help us to be alert and uh, eager to hear what you would give to us this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As as we're starting and working to clearly understand these first two verses, I want to do that by pointing out several things. Uh, And this this is going to come in twos. It just sort of worked out this way. It wasn't really on purpose. But what we'll do is uh, we'll look at verse 1. We will take note of two things. We'll look at verse 2 and take note of two things. And then we will draw two conclusions uh, as a result at the end. So let's start by by looking very carefully here at verse 1. Let me read it again for us. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. First thing that I want you to notice is that there are two workers spoken of here. And I'm not talking about the builder and the watchman. In both of those scenarios of the builder and the preserver, or the one who's watching over, do you notice that there are two agents active each time? You have the Lord, described as working. So the Lord builds the house. The Lord watches over the city. He is an active agent in this verse. But he's not the only one. We are also described here as working. So you have the, uh, those who build it in the first part of verse 1. You have the watchman who is staying awake and doing work in that way. You have two agents in both situations. And when you think of those two agents and the ways that they work together, what, what we're thinking of is usually thought of in terms of, uh, well, it's called a number of things. One of the things it's called is uh, the difference between primary and secondary causes in things. Scripture makes clear that God, uh, all things happen as a result of the will of God. Nothing happens apart from his moving. And so we, we have this understanding of God as primary cause, but God who often makes use of secondary causes. When the Lord builds, in this case, when he builds a house, let's say, and that can be taken to talk about a building, it can be spoken of as in terms of a household, a family lineage. In both of those sorts of situations, if God is building, he chooses to use means to do so. And specifically, he uses human agents to accomplish things in both of those situations. Now, that matters for us to take note of here because it, it can be easy for us to look at verse 1 and start to develop even unconsciously a sense that Psalm 127 is downplaying the reality of human agency. And that is just not the case. Human agency is described here and spoken of. It's very important for us because these verses uh, really speak into every realm of all of the efforts of human life. It it could be pretty easy to make the argument that every moment of your life could be wrapped up in one of these two words, building or preserving. Just think of the extent to which your whole life is one of those two things. And so verse 1 is not downplaying our role, both in building and in preserving. Our role is spoken of here as a real role. The second thing that you need to notice in verse 1 is that we have a parallel between the builder and the watchman, the builder and the preserver. Uh, this, is, this is an example of what happens all the time in Hebrew poetry. They, in Hebrew poetry, their words don't rhyme at the ends, not like our poetry, and so they use a number of different devices to, to create a poetic uh, sense in what they're writing. One of the parallelisms that they will use of many, we see here, we call it synonymous parallelism. And all that that means is that the first line of the couplet has a point, and that point is the same point that's being made in the second line. It's helpful for us to know that because it can keep us from making um, improper assumptions, and it can help us to see what connects the two of those things together. So notice, for example, here that uh, do you see that in neither one of these two uh, pieces of the parallel in verse 1, in neither one of them do we have any moral analysis of what's going on. Do you notice that it makes no statement about what kind of building the builder is building, what kind of a worker he is, makes no statement about the watchman and uh, his moral status as he watches over the city. Neither one of them are being criticized for the particular work that they're doing. It might be bad work. It might not be. It's not spoken of here. That's not the point that the author is making. Like he does in other places. You think of places like Matthew 7, where we're warned about a foolish builder. Don't be the foolish builder. No no such statement is being made here. What's being said about these two workers, the builder and the watchman, Uh, is not a statement on the morality of their work. It's a statement on the usefulness of their work. When they work, but the blessing of the Lord is not with their work, they are working in vain. That's what's being said here. Now, I don't know about you, when I hear the word vain, and I think of an Old Testament context, my mind immediately goes to the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe yours does too. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and he lists out a number of really good things that are vain. He talks about growing in knowledge and learning, and he says it's vain. He talks about uh, working hard to build up a nest egg for your family, and he calls it vain. There's a specific point that Solomon is making in Ecclesiastes as he calls a number of things vanity. We need to understand that Solomon, who is the same author of Psalm 127, When he speaks about things being vain in Ecclesiastes, he is using an entirely different word than he is using here. It's not the same two ideas. The word for vain in Ecclesiastes is a word that means, literally, breath. This is speaking about things being unlasting. But the word that's used here in Psalm 127 is a word that means useless, so in other words, Ecclesiastes stresses the impermanence of things because of death. But this, uh, th- these statements in Psalm 127 are stressing the futility of a certain kind of effort. We could understand this well, I think, if we try to paraphrase Romans 8.31 in a negative way. And we could say it like this, if God is against us, what does it matter who is for us? God is against us. Or maybe in terms of verse 2 here, if God is against us, what does it matter what time I wake up in the morning to get started? If God is against us, there's a certain type of effort that is futile, that is useless. Now, again, we find no statement in verse 1 about the morality of these builders' work. Uh, Because Solomon's goal is singular in verse one. He wants to drive home one simple fact to us. And here it is. What we're meant to take from verse one is this God is the decisive actor in every labor we engage in. Our role is a real role. We act, we really do. We are not the decisive actors, God is the decisive actor. Do you notice what it is in verse 1 that renders our work vain or not vain? Useless or useful? Do you see that it hangs on one thing? It hangs on the will and activity of God. That's what determines it in this passage. So this is the singular point we're to take from verse 1. God is the decisive actor in every labor we engage in. Now, let's look at verse 2. Let me reread it for us. He continues this way. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, there's something important that we need to understand here about verse 2. Verse 2 and its emphasis is related to, but not exactly the same as verse 1. There's a crucial difference we need to notice. Do you see in verse 1 our activity may be vain or not vain in verse 1, right? Useful or not useful, depending on the will and activity of God. But verse 2 describes something we can do that will always be useless. Always. Do you see that? It is in vain. That's all he talks about. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. He's describing here not a third activity. This isn't, it's not like we have building a house, watching over a city, and now a third thing uh, that that we can do. That's not what's happening. Verse 2 is a description of how we can do those things in verse 1 in a way that proves to be vain, that proves to be useless. Let's notice two things here about verse 2. And here's the first one. And I say this, say it like this, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but maybe this is helpful for some of you for me to say right at the outset. Uh, verse 2 is not necessarily about our bedtimes. Some of you can just take a deep breath then. Because rising up early or going late to rest is a really important part of your, of your schedule. It's how you get things done. Uh, verse 2 is not necessarily relevant to our bedtimes. Because what's being described here is in fact a certain mindset. A godless mindset. Verse 2 describes a person who walks through life, regardless of what he or she says, walks through life believing that God is not there. This is a man who gets up early and stays up late, and he does it for this reason. He has convinced himself that any bread he is going to eat is going to come as a result of his anxious toil. That's the mindset that's being described here. And incidentally, I would just share with you, it, it seems to me that there's a, you see a lot of care and gentleness in the way that God phrases verse 2 as he stresses to us that it is useless for us to do this. There's so much that he could have said about this that he doesn't. If he's describing a godless mindset, he could have said, it's foolish that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. He doesn't say it like that. He could have said, it's godless that you do this. He could have said, it's rebellious that you do this. But I just wonder if we don't see the love and care and gentleness of God as he comes to us, we who are so tempted to do this often, And it's almost, it seems to me you can just hear him and see his face as he says, this is useless for you to live this way for you to think this way. This is not necessarily relevant to our bedtimes because there is nothing wrong with rising up early or going late to rest. There's nothing wrong with it. it, it it's interesting to me, uh, maybe only to me, I don't know, but the, when it says rising up early, that's that's one word, that's, a, that's one verb uh, used in the Greek Old Testament and in, in the New Testament. So I think of it as like, you're early morninging it. It's in vain that you're early morninging it. This is this is one action. Uh, people are said to do that all throughout the Old and New Testament. Many different situations. One of the people that's said to do that, using that exact word, is Jesus. In John 8, 2, Jesus pulls an early morning intentionally so that he can carve out time that he will not have available to him to be with his, with his Father in prayer before the day's laborers Uh, another person that's said to do that is the proverbs 31 woman this woman described in proverbs 31 10 and following that's held up as this as this example to be seen and admired and followed and it says of her in verse 15 that she is up before the sun comes up she's up while it's still night and she's not even doing it to pray she's doing it to provide food for her household and her servants She's not described that way as a criticism. This is something that's held up as as worthy, uh, as something that is noble. So there's nothing wrong inherently with rising up early or with going late to rest. The point of criticism here in verse 2, the element that's being called vain or useless, is the goal of it all. This person is doing this in order to eat the bread of anxious toil. We could say that another way. They're doing this in order to find sustenance that comes from anxious toil. This is the fundamental flaw of this person's thinking. They believe that anxious toil produces sustenance. That is useless, Solomon tells us. Why? Why is it useless to live that way? Do you see that he answers that question at the end of the verse? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? For he gives to his beloved sleep. See, the worker of verse 2 is laboring with the thought that since God does not exist, their rest, their sustenance can come from nowhere but their own efforts. That's where it's going to come, if it comes. And Solomon's point is very simple. It's as simple as the point he makes in verse 1. Remember, his point in verse 1 was simply, God is the decisive actor in all our labors. His point here is equally simple. All human sustenance comes from the Lord. All human sustenance comes from the Lord. Christ is said to be our peace, Ephesians 2.14. He is said to be our our rest Hebrews 4:3 Now you think about what kind of a person needs rest. Only weary people need rest, right? We grow weary. Uh, our weariness is not a sign of unbelief. Usually it's a sign simply of life in a world that is groaning and waiting for its restoration. But this is where this is the question that underlies verse 2 here. Where do I expect my help to come from? What is the mindset I'm living out of that results in a certain expectation of where sustenance, relief, rest is going to come from? Now we can see here a little bit of the danger of plucking out one psalm and trying to look at it by itself. You you know, Psalm 127 is one of the psalms of ascent that they would sing as they climbed the steps up to the temple to worship. Uh, And wouldn't you know it, there are themes that run through these. So it it, it is not surprising to me as we come to that sort of a question here, where do I expect my help to come from, that maybe that's a question that has been raised somewhere else in this section. And uh, depending on your Bible, it might be on the same page. If you look over to Psalm 121, just a few chapters back, let me read that psalm to you here. And follow along with me, thinking in terms of what we have seen in Psalm 127. Psalm 121, verse 1 I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Just think, builder. He will not let your foot be moved, he who keeps you will not slumber. So what we've seen so far is that verse 1 emphasizes the reality of God as the decisive actor, the decisive worker behind all human endeavors. And what, number, what verse 2 warns us is of the uselessness of effort that has ignored verse 1, that has forgotten verse 1. All of the anxiety and the effort exerted, ignorant of verse 1, is useless and wasted. Now, I hope you believe firmly this morning that God has given us these verses to bless us. I hope you believe this morning that God has put them before us all together this morning intentionally to bless his people. Do you believe that this morning? He is richly blessing us. And I want to try to uh, clearly present two specific ways that God is blessing your life this morning by the realities of these two verses. They are related. I think, I, I think we could see them as a negative and a positive blessing, if we want to put it that way. A negative can be a blessing. Have you ever gotten negative results on a lab test before? Is that ever a blessing to us? Negatives can be blessings. Uh, we'll look at that one first. These, these two truths of verse 1 and verse 2 together bless us, in a sense negatively, by taking away the anxiety that we can feel regarding the outcomes of our labors. The the realization described in verse 1 saves us from the bondage described in verse 2. Our building is not the decisive building. And the weight of the reality of that truth will grant you freedom ...from the anxious toil of verse 2. I want to show you another place where this is spoken of. Uh, Turn again, as we did last week, to the Gospel of Luke. Keep your finger here, but flip over to Luke, this time to Luke chapter 12. I want us to hear what Jesus says about this very reality. And for many of you, it will be a well-known passage. But again, I would challenge you to please try to hear this... ...in light of what we're seeing in Psalm 127... God as the decisive actor, and especially here, God as the source of all of our sustenance. Luke 12, beginning in verse 25. Jesus said this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Pause there for a moment. Is he calling us to laziness in that statement? To a lack of foresight, of planning and preparation and, and work ethic? Of course he's not, just as he's not in Psalm 127.4. His point here is very clear by reading the entire passage. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, what exactly does that mean? Is this a prosperity gospel statement, promising abundant care in terms of food and clothing and shelter and all needs met at all times for the Christian? Is this, does this mean that He promises us no seasons where we lack in some of these ways? What do you know about church history? Is that a good description of church history? Full time of no suffering or lack? Uh, No, That's, that's a very poor rendition of church history. What is his point here? It's the same point of our passage. Who does our sustenance come from every time? God is the provider of these things. When they come to us, they come from Him. They do not come from our anxious toil. We labor. We work to be faithful. But all human sustenance comes from God. Now flip back to Psalm 127, verse 2. All human sustenance comes from God. And who are we to Him? Look at the verse. Do you see who it says we are to Him? Do you see that it says that we are his beloved? All of our sustenance comes from him and he is the one who happens to love us. And so it makes sense when Jesus encourages us in these ways and calls us those of little faith. It is a faith statement concerning the God from whom all sustenance comes when we begin to strive to eat the bread of anxious toil. And so these realities bless us by stripping away the anxiety that we're so often tempted with when we consider the outcomes of our labors. It's a bit of a negative blessing because it is a stripping away of these anxieties. But the other side of that is is a way to express this positively. Uh, This blessing, again, we are not the decisive builders. And that blesses us positively by directing our focus and our effort then toward what we can affect. What we are supposed to put our attention on and strive toward. I hope you have no misunderstanding this morning that the Bible presents to you real commands toward real work and labor and effort that you're supposed to fill your life with. The Christian life is a busy life, according to Scripture. And God sets those things before us in His Word, and He calls us to give those things our attention. But because of the realities of Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, I am set free to enjoy my labor. Has that concept, has it been a while since you have had that concept in mind perhaps? That God may have set you free by what he has done and who he is so that you could actually enjoy the calling that God has set before you? I can content myself with working faithfully, living faithfully, living the results to God. The results are in his hands, aren't they? What is my job? Fear God, and then live. Isn't that exactly the way that this same author, Solomon, ended the book of Ecclesiastes? In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, he said, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Where are the outcomes and the results in that command? They're not given to us. We mentioned Proverbs 31 earlier. There is a tremendous positive example of this, I think, in the picture of Proverbs 31 beginning in verse 10. You can flip there for a moment so you can see some of these things with me. Proverbs 31 is rightly studied so often in women's conferences and such, but there is tremendous usefulness for all of us, men, women, not just by seeing the accounts of what she does, how she labors, but by hearing in the midst of this chapter the explanations for why she is what she is and why she does what she does. Put your eyes on verse 10 and you can just let them drift down a little bit and notice the activity that it describes. This is a, an industrious, hardworking woman inside of the home, outside of the home, all of her effort Uh, clearly for the goal of providing for her household, which is the same goal that her husband works toward, the two of them working together. But let me point out a couple of things to you here. Look at verse 15. We've already mentioned this. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. This is a hardworking person. This is someone who is getting up early in the morning. We see it in many other places here. But we begin to see some explanation as to why she is able to do the things that she does and seem to find even pleasure and enjoyment in it. Look down at verse 21. This is quite a statement. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Now, what's the implication there? How did her family get clothed in scarlet? She made clothes for them, right? And she did it before the snow came so that she knows it's coming and she is not afraid of that snow that is coming. Now, think of, think of some other things that this says about her. You might think of some of the ways we peer into the future in a way very unlike her. Does she know how much snow is going to come? Does she know how fast the wind's going to blow when it comes? Does she know whether that wind is going to blow the scarlet clothing right off of her family or not? She doesn't know any of those things, does she? This is a lack of fear, it says. She is not afraid of snow for her household. This speaks to us about how she chooses to view the future. This is not a na- Is this a picture in this chapter of a naive woman who just thinks everything going forward is going to go just fine with no problems? That's not the picture here at all. This is a woman who, uh, whose faithfulness to her God-given responsibilities is reflected in a confidence toward what may come. Let's continue to see why that confidence is there. We can see it again in verse 25. Look down there. What a description. It's just beautiful. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Hmm. Now, it, that's, that's translated in different ways. It's kind of a challenging passage to the, the, the second half of that, but it's clear this is not a laughter coming from derision or mocking or, or anything like that. This is, this is a statement of confidence. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. One man wrote this about this description of her. He said, her raiment is a just Pride, true dignity, with which she looks confidently into the future and is armed against all sorrow and care. Now, did you hear what he said? He didn't say she expects no sorrow or cares in the future. Again, this is not a naive woman. She is armed against all sorrow and care that is to come. What is it that's arming her and guarding her? view of the future well one of those things we've seen all of the way through this you can see it in verse 27 she does not eat the bread of idleness she's diligently doing what she has been called by god to do she's being faithful there are other places in proverbs that speak of people who don't see coming what they should see coming and then it comes and they are undone and they suffer that's this is not she's not one of those people she has seen things coming and she's been faithful and diligent, and hardworking. And apparently, that faithfulness is a component of of her confidence as she looks to what might come in the future. But deeper than that, this is a woman whose mindset is characterized by what we read in verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be... Praised. Do you hear how it takes this woman and it says, this is what's going on in this woman. This is a woman who fears the Lord. Her fear of God is what drives her to faithfulness in what she has been called to do. But it doesn't just drive her to her duty. It drives her to confidence in her living. And we can be confident because God has set us free to enjoy our callings and our labor And to trust him with the result. We see it in this woman. Who laughs at what is to come. Who does not know the future. But lives choosing to be confident. In the God who controls the future. The two blessings of Psalm 127. Positive and negative come together. To grant us a peaceful hope. As we live out our lives. If you take away The knowledge of God as the decisive actor and a God who loves us. All you're left with is the man of verse 2. A man who has the weight of the world on his shoulders. I don't think that's a bad way to describe this poor fellow in verse 2. Working from morning till night to eat the bread of anxious toil. Weight of the world on his shoulders. Is that how the Bible says God treats his children? What's the picture that we get? Does he save us and then put the weight of the world on our shoulders? Or does the Bible describe a God who has given us life when we were yet his enemies? Does it describe a God who has cleansed us of our guilt by letting our iniquity fall on him? A God who calls us to share in the yoke of Christ, which he says is light because Jesus is carrying the weight. Does the Bible describe to us a God who promises his constant presence? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Does it describe a God who promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him? Is that the picture that the Bible gives to us of our God and his relationship to us? If he hasn't put the weight of the world on your shoulders and you walk around looking and thinking and feeling like he has. Do you see that that shames him? If I live out my calling before God as if I have the weight of the world on my shoulders, it says to everybody around me that I serve a God who gives no rest to his people. That's what it says. And so suddenly we realize that this is about much more than our own hope and peace. The glory of God Is at stake. But the alternative to this weight of the world on our shoulders is something beautiful and good. It's not a carefree life. What sinner is promised a carefree life? But it is a life full of peace and hope. It's a life that points to a God who gives rest to his children that he loves. My friends, that is the rest that we are offering to a weary and heavy laden people. A lost and dying world around us. We understand sin to be our greatest burden. Disqualifying us from the presence, pleasure, blessing of God. Earning us his eternal condemnation. And of a savior sent in God's love. God himself come to dwell among us to bear the weight of our sin. On Himself and to die in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus is our peace, Ephesians 2 14. He is our rest, Hebrews 4 3. If you're a believer here this morning, I say to you, that is a description of you. That's the truth about your position, your situation, your future. When you go through life and you are encountering thoughts, feelings, emotions that would go contrary to that, your job is to fight them. Your duty is to fight those things with the truth that God has given you in Scripture. You are His beloved child. He is for you, not against you. There is every reason, in reality, not in imagination, to view the future with confidence and to walk faithfully and humbly before Him. The Christian life is not an easy one. It is one full of fighting. And we fight armed with the truth. We'll end this morning where we ended last week. And that is with the reality that's expressed in Galatians 2.20. And I would say again, as I did then, to my brothers and sisters here this morning, He's talking about you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Heavenly Father, these are precious truths to us. We are sojourners in this world. We are not yet home. And because we are in the wilderness, we deal with trial and tribulation. We thank you that by faith you have revealed yourself to us. We do long for the day when we would walk by sight and not By faith, when we would see your Son in all of his splendor, when all will be made right, when all wrongs will be undone. Father, until that day, we thank you for promises, descriptions, warnings like the ones you give us here in Psalm 127. Guard them in our hearts, Lord. Help us to be a people who live conscious of the fact that you are the decisive actor in all that takes place, and that all of our sustenance comes from you. Help us to live obedient lives as we wait expectantly, hopefully, confidently for our Lord to appear. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction? From the book of Romans, Romans fifteen, thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. You are dismissed.